continuing with the Dhamma talk entitled Beyond Cause and Effect. This is in the section called Being Dharma. Speaking of entering the stream to Nirvana, if there is genuine knowing within you, there's no one desiring anything. And further, Nirvana is not a matter of wanting. It isn't something that you can, that you can desire. This characteristic is not easy to understand. This Dharma isn't something that you can explain or give to people. Our parents might want to give it to us, but even they don't know what it is, and they have no means to do this. This is something to be known within yourself. You can tell others about it, but there is this problem. Will they really know what you're talking about? If they don't have the realization in their own minds, they won't get it. Thus the Buddha said, The Tathagata merely points the way, just as I am doing these days. I am one who explains, not the one who does it for you. Having been told you need to practice and realize, then the marvelous will arise and be known in your mind. There's a story in the scriptures of people asking the Buddha about nirvana. When he refused to elaborate on it, they began to say it was because he didn't know. How could the Buddha not know? The point is that such a thing is to be realized by each individual. When I speak like this, if you just hear it and believe me, that's not so good. It's not yet genuine. Those who believe others are said by the Buddha to be foolish. He said to listen to things and then to contemplate to experience the truth of them. You should be able to listen without merely denying. Receive the words, not merely believing, but investigating their meaning. It isn't a matter of believing or not believing. Put those aside for the time being and contemplate to the best of your ability. Now this is uh, <clears throat> referring to the um, e ephemeral or intangible uh, nature of Dhamma, the um, unimaginability, uh, unimaginable quality that the mind can't really create an image of what is timeless uh, and um, so transcendent. You know, the, our usual sense perceptions fall short and uh, can't come up with uh, any kind of reliable or, or relevant image. So that the Buddha uh, spent most of his time describing the pathway to realization of of, of Dhamma of, and of Nibbana, but um, uh, not dwelling too much on uh, trying to describe the indescribable or the, the transcendent. And particularly, I'm not sure exactly which teaching Lumpuchar is referring to here, where he says that there's a story of people asking the Buddha about nirvana. Uh, what was frequently asked about the, uh, of the Buddha was about what's the uh, the nature of an enlightened being after the death of the body, and he was very stoic in absolutely refusing to say anything uh, about that whatsoever. He's saying, you know, they, if you ask where does an enlightened being go, he would say, you know. That uh, where do they said that that going doesn't apply. Where do they reappear? Well, reappears doesn't apply. Well, do they not reappear? Well, no, does not reappear doesn't apply, and so on. So he was uh, uh, regularly um, sort of misinterpreted that he didn't really know or he had a secret he wasn't telling people. When what he was trying to point out is that you know words and concepts can't uh, can't describe the reality of things, and in particular. Um, there's a dialogue between him and a wanderer called Vachagota, 
uh, who was a very sincere um, practitioner but of a different sect. Eventually he became a disciple of the Buddha and an arahant. There's many, many dialogues uh, before then where Vajjagata came and asked questions. And uh, So on one occasion Vajjagata comes and asks these questions about what happens to an enlightened being at the death of the body. And do they reappear in a in another realm? Um, and the Buddha said, you know, reappears doesn't apply. And then Vajjagata asked, well, do they not reappear? Do they disappear and they're, they're completely um, annihilated? And then the Buddha said, does not reappear, doesn't apply. And then uh, Vajjagata, sort of, to cover all bases, he says, well, do they both reappear and not reappear? And he said, that doesn't apply either. And then finally, do they neither reappear nor not reappear? Which really covers every angle. He, uh, he hopes then, he nope, that doesn't apply either. So then Vajjagata says, I'm really confused because in one of those four must be representing the reality of things. And the Buddha then pointed out that, you know, the way you pose the question presumes a reality that doesn't exist. So, uh, and again, Vajjagata is kind of like, huh? what does he mean by that? So then the Buddha gives this wonderful example. He said, so if we had a, a little fire burning here made of grass and sticks, and then we let the fire go out. And I ask you the question, where did the fire go, north, south, east, or west? What would you say? And you say, well, uh, the, the question doesn't apply because it didn't go north, south, east, or west. It just went out. And the Buddha said, exactly. So the way you put the question, where does an enlightened being go? Do they reappear or not reappear? The way you speak about it presumes a reality that doesn't exist. So you know, your question in the way that it's put is unanswerable. It's a meaningless question. It, and so that it can't be answered in, in that respect. And then he goes on to say how the Tathagata can't be defined in terms of the five khandhas. You know, even as they're sitting there having a dialogue, he, uh, um, he uh, points out that uh, you... Uh, that, uh, and he spells it out in, in quite some clear detail to, uh, to Vajjagata. In a, and I think one of the most helpful dialogues in the, in the Pali Canon, he says... Um, yeah, that material form whereby someone trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him, that's been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence and rendered incapable of arising in the future. So to that feeling, that perception, those mental formations, that consciousness that someone would use to describe the Tathagata, even as the, you know, the, sitting there with having a conversation, even while the, the body is still alive, that... Uh, those the, those five khandhas have been completely let go of, completely abandoned, cut off at the root and so forth by the, the Tathagata, the awake, aware um, mind, the awake, aware being. So even though they're sitting face to face, you can't define this uh, awakened presence in terms of the five khandhas, in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. Then he goes on to say, um, that a targeter is liberated from being reckoned in terms of a material form, in terms of the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. And so that um, um, uh, uh, I feel that's a very, very helpful description and also is a kind of map for insight meditation uh, as well, because even though it's talking about uh, the Buddha and the, the Buddha sort of speaking about the nature of his own mind, his own sort of subjective reality, as it were, subjective experience. It does apply to our own practice, and so that when we're establishing the, the mind in uh, insight meditation, 
then that which is aware of the five khandhas, it knows the body and feelings, perceptions, sounds and sensations, and ideas and memories arising, passing away, but it, uh, that that awake-aware quality is uh, can't be defined in terms of those five khandhas, in, certain, in terms of those five categories. It knows them, it's totally aware of them, but it's not limited or defined by them. And that uh, spelling out in that dialogue with Vachagota, I feel, is one of the, the best and clearest expressions of that. And in particular, uh, the second part of it where he says, uh, he, is, he is profound, the Tathagata is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. And you know, many of you have heard me talk about this many times, but I do feel it's ex- extremely helpful because he's, uh, he's saying there that this quality of awakened awareness, this presence uh, of uh, awareness that is, uh, the, uh, say, the, the Tathagata is the embodiment of that, is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable. So there's a quality that is there that it, he compares to the ocean, like standing at the, at the seashore, we can see the, the, the vast waters and reaching all the way to the horizon. And there's a sense of wonderment, of vastness, of, of power, the, the, the waves moving and the, the presence of the water. You can't see what's underneath it. So there's this quality of vastness and mystery and profundity. So there's a there's a powerful presence, but you can't you can't really pin it down. You can't uh, uh, say define exactly you know, all those uh, attributes of the the ocean. So, but he uses that image to talk about the, uh, his own nature or the nature of the mind that is completely let go of the five khandhas. It that knows the five khandhas, but is completely uh, unidentified, unentangled with them. So I I do feel that's a very helpful model in terms of of saying, yeah, it's unimaginable or undescribable. <laughs> you do have that profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So that quality of uh, standing on the shore on a cliff and, and looking out over the, the, uh, the ocean, that sense of wonderment, that sense of, uh, of uh, infinitude and presence, then that that's, it brings a, a few of the qualities of that realization into uh, into focus or, or clarifies gives us gives us some kind of a of a form and so that um uh, i feel that that is a a very useful passage to get to know it's in the the discourse called vachagota and fire the agi vachagota sutta number 72 in the middle length discourses so uh, do get uh, encourage people to get familiar with that to use that as a theme for for contemplation. Then the second part here where he talks about believing others, again this is a very very common theme uh, of Lumpur Chars and um, he regularly would quote the dialogue uh, between the Buddha and Sariputta and it's a sort of when we uh, when Ajahn Pasna and I were preparing the book The Island we, we sort of looked into the background of this because Ajahn Chah gave this, this uh, told the story so many times and when we, we sort of dug into the suttas and, and looked up to, to find references for it, we consulted Bhikkhu Bodhi and he said, well, the, the way Ajahn Chah tells the story, it's a combination of two different pieces. Uh, one is a, uh, a, 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 a sutta from the um, Sanyutta Nikaya called the Eastern Gatehouse. And then there's another as a, a, a commentary to one of the verses of the Dhammapada, and Ajahn Chah is sort of mushing those two together to um, to, uh, to to create the complete story. And the the uh, the account is one of the Buddha giving a Dhamma talk 
and Venerable Sariputra is sitting with him as he gives this, this teaching. And at the end of the talk, the Buddha turns to Sariputra and says, have you ever heard me give this teaching before? And Sariputra says, no, I haven't. And then the Buddha says to Sariputta, do, uh, do you believe it to be true? Uh, or do you take it to be true? And then Sariputta says, not yet. And the, the implication being that sitting in front of a large group of people, the chief disciple of the great master is saying, you know, I don't trust your words, you know, <laughs> that you're, you're un, uh, your teaching is unreliable, which, which would apparently be insulting or, or uh, you know, inappropriate, rude in some, uh, in some way, shape or form. And then the, uh, the Buddha asked Sariputta, well, why is that? Uh, and uh, Sariputta said, because even though you're a, a great enlightened master, you're, you're my teacher and I'm your chief disciple, I haven't had the time to test this out and see, uh, uh, see the truth of it for myself. And then the Buddha says, good, Sariputta, good. This is exactly how you should uh, uh, relate to it, even though you, know, you have faith in me as an enlightened teacher and you're my chief disciple. Even so... You should not just believe things easily. Uh, you should test them out and see uh, see their truth uh, for yourself. So Lumpur Cha told that story many, many, many times, and uh, with this same spirit behind it, like don't believe things easily, even if it's coming from an authority figure or it makes sense or it's you know, quoted from the scriptures. But you know, pick it up, use it, find out for yourself. That's what really is going gonna, is gonna to help. So receive the words, not merely believing, but investigating their meaning. It isn't a matter of believing or not believing. Put those aside for the time being and contemplate to the best of your ability. So uh, that was the encouragement uh, to not just go along with what sounds reasonable or coming from an authority, uh, but rather to, to listen and to, um, to uh, say explore things for yourself. And that example of Venerable Sariputta saying that he didn't believe the words of the Buddha in front of a whole crowd of people. Ajahn <laughs> Chah was going to lean on that and say, look. And then the Buddha praised him for not believing him. That's, that's just how important that principle is. Um, also because people tended to believe everything that Ajahn Chah said. <laughs> and thought, well, he's the great enlightened master, so whatever he says is true. He would keep handing it back to people and say, no, don't just believe me, but test it out and see for yourself whether this has any validity. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. So probably this is the wrong question. So what is the, the, this is probably the wrong question. Yes, but I still want to ask. So what is this awareness made of? That's yeah, probably the wrong question. Yes. <laughs> well, made, like, made is... Uh, implies compoundedness. And so, uh, as Lumpur Sumedho keeps emphasizing in many of his teachings, that that, uh, awareness is, uh, the way he phrases it, is the awareness is unconditioned. And so, uh, uh, I like to talk about it as a a, a natural attribute of the Dhamma itself. The the Buddha arises from the Dhamma, that awareness arises from that, that fundamental reality. So to think of it as a compounded thing amongst other compounded things, or even to use the word thing, is, is wide of the mark. It's a quality, I would say, uh, that, uh, and the most important aspect of it is to <laughs> embody that awareness rather than trying to figure out an explanation or a, a kind of conceptual uh, 
back, uh, you know, description of it. Um, so I would say yeah, it is somewhat the wrong question, but more important uh, is that uh, clarifying that very quality of of, uh, of knowing. Also, awareness is a is a, a um, it's a uh, an abstract noun, so it's like a thing. Just so to use a word like knowing, which is more of a verb, um, it's like a, 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 an activity. Uh, is a, is closer to the mark than even talking about awareness because it, you know the the mind creates the world of things and then isolates those but we live more i would say the reality is more a collection of verbs and adverbs rather than nouns and and pronouns and and things and so that uh, that um uh to investigate and explore what this quality uh, of knowing is in in direct uh, in personal experience. That's the that's the place to look. So it's, it's a reasonable question. If you, uh, but it does you know it's one of those things where the way we phrase the question is implying a whole set of um, assumptions, and so that that it's it's good to with, when the mind comes up with a question like that then. As to pick it up and go, well, what's being assumed in the way that my mind is framing the question? Let's look at that. And then, so digging into it in that way. Okay. There are the two extremes. We lean toward either side, but we don't like to stay in the middle. The middle is the lonely way. When there is attraction, we go that way. When there is aversion, we go that way. Putting them down is lonely. We refuse to go there. The Buddha taught that neither extreme is the way of one who is tranquil. We need to be free of pleasure and pain, for neither is the way of peace. Once free of these things, we can be peaceful. Thinking, I'm so happy, is not it. That's just happiness for suffering in the future. These are things that we have to be wary of. Walking the path, we see the two extremes and keep going. We keep to the middle without desiring them because we want peace, not pleasure or pain. This is the correct path. So this, again, is a, it's a subtle point, um, but yeah, uh, attraction and aversion are more exciting. And the middle, <laughs> uh, it's interesting that he uses this expression, the middle is the lonely way. That there's a, a evocative way of speaking about that. Our mind, we, we like extremes, you know, even things that are frightening or sh- or painful, or, or um, uh, as well as being attractive. Um, that, as they say about newspapers, or well, at least in the in the old days of newspapers, if it bleeds, it leads. So, that anything that's to do with em- em- that's emotionally evocative, if there's bloodshed and and uh, suffering and disaster, put it on the front page. It'll sell papers. As uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha used to often say, um, that if you if you made a banner headline of uh, uh, Venerable Sumato breathed in and then he breathed out again, <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't sell many newspapers. But if uh, you know Venerable Sumato has run off with a sixteen-year-old girl, say, so, oh my goodness, what's that about? And sell piles of papers to to. Um, and so that's 
and that's exactly what Lumpur, Lumpur Charles is talking about, is that the uh, ordinariness doesn't attract our attention. The mind notices these differences, attraction and aversion, you know, painful pain and pleasure, and that which is the Majima Patipada, the middle, we, we, uh, we don't notice. But, uh, and he's quoting the beginning of the Dhammachaka Sutta there. Um, the Buddha, neither extreme is the way of one who is tranquil. So that um, uh, the beginning of the Dhammachaka Sutta, Dve me bhikkhuve anta papachitena nasevitabha. Uh, the, um, there, are, there are these two ways which, uh, which are not followed by one who has gone forth, a papajita, you know, one who is a spiritual practitioner, one who is tranquil. It's the way of indul- sensual indulgence and the way of sensual suppression, uh, indulgence and, and self-mortification. So that the, the, the middle, uh, he often also would describe that as the way of balance, that the, the middle way is a way of, of balance. It's not either going to either extreme, sort of falling off either side, but it's the, the quality of, of balance itself, and would also talk about samadhi as that, that quality uh, of balance. Another way I like to talk about the principle of the middle way is that um, rather than, and sometimes it's not uncommon for people to assume that the middle way means indulging yourself half the time and suppressing things or hating yourself the other half of the time and just sort of shuttling, giving 50-50, you know, just <laughs> kind of indulge myself half the time and, and torture myself the other half. This is not the middle way of the Tathagata, but rather than than just being halfway between the two extremes or spending you know, half the time in, in one extreme or another. Rather, the middle way is that, uh, like a, if you have a something that is a... a um, take this as an example. So that rather than... You know, this the extreme of indulgence over here, the extreme of, of uh, self-mortification over here, and then sort of a 50-50 in the middle... That the middle way I, I like to think of as the point that the two pivot from. That's where where things pivot from, rather than just sort of being halfway along out of the out of the extreme. It's going back to that that root where the extremes come from. So it's again all analogies are partially pertinent, relevant, but uh, that I feel is a gives a, a better feel for what we mean by the middle way, rather than just fifty fifty. And it, it is. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, the middle way, it's a way of moderation, Ajahn. I think we should have supper in the monastery, you know. The way of, yes, that's, that'd be more the middle way, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think the kitchen would object. <laughs> double the washing up and double the, uh, double the, the food prep. But uh, that's often the way people think of what the middle way is. And, and in ordinary, every, sort of everyday language, um, that sort of, um, that, is an is a meaning of of middle way or or way of moderation, um, but in terms of of it as a transcendent quality, it's it's like if you're balanced on a tightrope rather than falling off to the left or falling off to the right, it's the that <coughs> quality of of balance balancedness at the center. The practice of dharma is leading to the point of letting go, but we must have knowledge of things according to the truth in order to let go. When real knowledge arises, there will be endurance in the practice of dharma. There will be enthusiastic, consistent effort. This is called practicing. Once you've gotten to the end, you don't need to use the dharma. 
like a sword that you, that you sharpen to cut wood. Once the wood is cut, you put down the saw. You don't need to use it then. The saw is the Dharma. The Dharma is the tool to help you to attain path and fruition. Once we've accomplished this, we put it down. Once the job is done, why would you keep holding the saw? The wood is the wood, the saw is the saw. This is about stopping, having reached the essential point, the end of all the taints of craving and ignorance. The wood is cut. You don't have to cut anymore. You can put the saw down. One who will practice must rely on the Dharma. That's someone who is not yet sorry, one who one who will practice must rely on the Dharma. That's someone who is not yet finished. But if the job is done, you don't have to do any more. You can naturally let go at that point. With no more attachment and giving meaning to things, there is no need for any more doing. It's the state of peace. When we hear about it, we're full of doubts. What can it be? It seems so far away, but actually it's very close. It is something you can discover in your own mind. Things arise and you come to realize they're not certain. This is not real. That is not real. Where is the real? Right there. Trying to surmise. This is like this. That is like that. That's not right. Let go of things. Put down the judging and guessing. We go back and forth, passing it by again and again, and we're always in a state of suffering. End your doubts here. End your doubts and stop. Make an end of it right here. So that's the, the end of that talk uh, at that point. So uh, uh, The example he's giving here about the saw, and then uh, people are also probably familiar with the, the, um, the example of a raft, the simile of the raft that the, the Buddha gave about attachment to the teachings, and particularly sort of Dharma as a verbal teachings or uh, methods of, of practice and, med and meditation. So uh, the image that the Buddha comes up with is in the simile of the snake, Sutta number 22 in the Majjhima Nikaya, Middle Length Discourses, and the, uh, the parable of the raft. So if you're on the, uh, the near shore, which is full of danger and difficulty and struggle, and then there's the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the shore where is safety and security and peacefulness on the, the, on the far shore. If you want to get across from the dangerous shore to the, to the safe shore, then you look around, you gather together grass and sticks and, and uh, put together a raft. And then through your own effort, then paddling across the, the, the waters um, with your own energy, your own effort, your own diligence, you get across to the safe shore. And he says, so what, what would be the appropriate thing to do with the raft once you've arrived at the safe shore? Would it be sensible to pick the raft up, carry it around on your shoulder and say, this raft has helped me so much, so therefore I should take it with me wherever I go because it's been so useful I couldn't have got across the flood if it hadn't been for this wonderful raft. Uh, is that the right thing to do with the raft? Yeah. No, Venerable Sir. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the appropriate thing to do with the raft is to recognize, yeah, this has been useful, but to leave it on the on the bank of the the uh, of the, um, the the river and go on your own way go without the burden of of the raft he said this is this is exactly how to understand the the dharma teachings to it's a means of uh, crossing over it's not something to be carried around as a burden and so that attaching to the words of the dharma teachings or the practices the forms it's like carrying the the raft around or in in uh, Lumpur Chah's example here, it's like 
once you've already cut the wood to the shape that you need, then you don't need to hold, keep holding the saw. You know, the, the saw has done its job, so then you, you put it down. The wood is cut. You don't have to cut anymore. You can put the saw down. One who will practice that uh, must rely on the Dharma. So if, if, the, if the wood isn't cut yet, if you're still on the, <laughs> the dangerous shore, then yeah, you need a raft. And it's good to, to uh, do that, uh, put that together carefully and make sure that it, it works well, to handle the saw in a skillful way. Um, and so we use the teachings and the practices in as, in as uh, full and careful a way as possible. But uh, if the job has been done, then recognize you know, we're on the safe shore. We don't need to carry this around. The, the wood has been cut. Don't need to keep holding the saw and to, and to let go of that. doesn't mean that you destroy the saw or that you, um, you kind of uh, uh, d- uh, destroy the, the, the raft or dismiss it or, or uh, uh, don't acknowledge the usefulness of it. But you just don't need to carry it around. Don't need to be uh, obsessive or possessive about it. The um, and the uh, earlier part of that, where he says, the practice of dharma is leading to the point of letting go. But we must have knowledge of things according to the truth in order to let go. So, as I was uh, referring to um, a couple of days ago, that um, using our memory and our uh, imagination to explore the past, to look at. The, the conditioning influences of our life, our education, our family life, our siblings, uh, our, the environment we grew up in, the language that we, we first spoke, uh, what our life experiences have, have, experiences have been, and not to be kind of building up a biography and uh, creating a stronger sense of self, but to uh, fully appreciate the influences that form our experience of this moment because of speaking English or because of having a male body or because of uh, taking ordination so many years ago, then the world seems like this. It has these particular patterns. Um, and that appreciating the, the influence of, uh, of our background, our conditioning, um, is not to increase attachment or to or say to bolster the sense of, of self-view but rather to see here's the cause here's the effect this is the or, this is the uh, origin this is the result uh, this is the seed this is what the tree looks like um, and to uh, see our own life and our experiences in the way that the mind uh, appreciates and holds the, the present moment uh, is based upon a lot of that conditioning that those patterns are formed by our past history. And so just seeing it in terms of nature rather than in terms of self. And if we, uh, as I was quoting the other day, that George Santayana saying, those who do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. I'm sure he wrote a lot of other things as well, but that <laughs> seems to be the thing he's most well known for. That those who do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. It's the very things that are conditioning our perceptions that we don't even know are there. That's a... <laughs> they're the ones that are most insidious uh, and I, the other day I was talking about how I didn't realize how English I was until I started living with people who were not English I thought I was normal and then I d- discovered when I was living in, in Thailand with a lot of uh, people from different nationalities oh Englishness is not the baseline it's a, just a particular set of conditioning that's aha uh-huh. so the, a rude awakening to realize uh, that um, 
the effect of a particular sets of, of conditioning and, and assumptions that the mind makes. So uh, I, I do feel that's a, 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 in terms of contemplative practice and using wise reflection, that's extremely helpful just to, to look back, again, not to be uh, creating a feeling of, of grudge against those who've uh, you know, hurt us or harmed us or, or that um, bad treatment we might have had or if we were... Uh, so not looked after very well or we were mistreated by a, a doctor or we were very ill when we were small and or our parents rejected us and or we were uh, had a very difficult time in our education and such like or feeling indebted uh, that oh I owe so much my parents or my family they did so much for me I, I'm, I can never repay the debt um, that's not a skillful way of relating to to the past but rather just over and over uh, contemplating the sense of cause and effect how one thing leads to another so that the the view of this life has shifted from from self view to a, a dhamma centered view seeing see literally seeing with the eye of dhamma and then looking at the difference that that makes that, oh because of this cause there's this effect you know, this is this is where it comes from that's that's the result of it and uh, as i was saying the other day kind of in terms of family conditioning you know uh, I didn't realize that it was unusual to never have seen your parents argue. I never saw my parents argue with each other once in my whole life. Not once. I thought that was normal. Because I started living with other people. <laughs> no, I never saw them argue. I, they probably did, but not in front of the children. That's a very English thing. Not in front of the children. But I never saw my parents argue, not a single time. And so... You know, I can be very naive. I just assumed, without even realizing I was assuming anything, that that was ordinary. And then living in community and living with other people and and actually seeing people disputing with each other in front of their own children while visiting them. Like, <laughs> my goodness, this is this is weird. Yeah. Not not really having a place to put that. How can this be happening? Uh, so the, the, these kind of things, it's good to to be bringing to mind the influence is painful or pleasant, supportive and, and obstructive so that we are able to appreciate what's contributing to the, uh, the experience of, uh, of this moment as we find it. So any thoughts, questions? Yes. It's easy to understand, uh, put down the forms, the practice, but it's very difficult to understand, put down, put down Dharma internally, like Dharma, the teaching, to put it down. I feel I couldn't comprehend how to put down the teaching. Um, well, that's a good question. I think to, to be putting it in, con putting it down is also, part of that is seeing things in a context. So just to keep remembering, well, we say we talk about the five khandhas, or we talk about not-self. Well, that's a word, or a set of words, to talk about a particular principle. These are just words. They're pointing to something. So uh, that, so the word not-self is not not-self. It's a word. It's pointing to a quality or a, a particular... Uh, attitude or you know a way of seeing um, and so just to keep things in context that so putting the putting down the raft is that remember these are words that are 
convenient fictions. They're pointing to particular qualities and experiences or patterns of experience that, that can be known. But the words themselves are not the reality. They're, they're pointing to that or they're, they're trying to indicate areas for for uh, that can usefully be attended to. Um, so it's not negating, but putting in things into a context. So that's why I, I like to use that phrase, convenient fictions. You know, any anything we call a fact, any word or a concept, uh, it's a convenient fiction. That there, that every word, it's not exactly a lie, but every word is an approximation. So to say, book. You you know that you're referring to this kind of an object, but it's an approximation. It's a it's a it's a, a, a useful uh, reference term to be uh, re- referring to this thing rather than this thing. So we say you know book, chair, uh, re- you know recorder. Um, but it, and to remember that every word, every concept is an approximation. It's not the it's not the real thing. It's not the whole story. It can't be. So. That's how I would relate to putting down the raft and and not clinging to the Dhamma is remembering that the words of the Dhamma are not the Dhamma itself. They're words. Just like uh, the the word book is not a book. It's a word. (laughs) This is the real thing. And then the the word book can only refer to some aspects of this, you know, from English language. And also, you know, if you are a... um, uh, if you were a a little silverfish, one of those little bugs that like to eat glue in the, the spines of books, then they, ooh, smells good. This would be you know an, an edible thing. The words, the, the the black marks on the on the on the paper, like that insignificant, but the smell of the glue, like mmm, it sets off the triggers because if it's your, if you're a silverfish or a little bug that you know, likes that, then that's what you go for. And so that uh, the um, remembering that kind of um, contingent or sort of dependent nature of every every word, every concept, that it's it's dependent on a particular point of view. It has, it has meaning in a certain context. Um, then I say that's uh, say that putting down the, um, the the words of the Dhamma or letting that go. And then the, what we were talking about uh, yesterday, like with the, uh, the vipassana upakilesa, that if the mind is awake to to dhamma in, in a in a, a, a say so clear and unobstructed way, and there's a peacefulness and clarity, uh, just as in that uh, Panchataya Sutta, that um, I am at peace, I am without clinging, I have realized nibbana. So then it's like that right there, the experience of uh, the mind awake to to dhamma is. <laughs> Obstructing, obscuring that that uh, uh, that genuine appreciation, that genuine realization, with conceit coming into the picture, and think, I am at peace. I have realized. I have. There's a me who's got this experience, who's made this attainment, and so that that is the, the other, a more sort of wordless way of of um, not so much to do with the, the words of Dhamma teaching, but. The, the quality of experience that that's, you know the the raft has been picked up at that point like this is my raft <laughs> and that uh, that feeling of that quality of, of grasping identification with a mind state 
with an understanding or peacefulness or clarity, um, then that's also uh, say something that needs to be let go of and put down. The second one is much more insidious and tricky to work with than the first one. Words are much more visible, but those subtle attitudes of attachment identification they 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 don't announce them, they don't announce themselves so easily, and so that's more more tricky to deal with those. So that's the end of that uh, that particular talk. The next one is called Nibbana Pachayo Hotu, which means um, let this be a cause for Nibbana. Uh, this, let this be a condition for Nibbana. Um, so uh, I will uh, get onto that tomorrow, hopefully, if we're all still here. But I'll leave it there for today. <laughs>